off trail learning. This is Blake Bowles. Today I speak with my friend Lori Walker, who created an incredible and a really big program for homeschoolers in Portland, Oregon. That's been around for 17 years now. It's called Village Home, and it's a very unique model within the ecosystem of alternative schools and alternatives to school. So I think you'll find it really interesting. And if you want to start something like Village Home, Lori has some advice for you at the very end. Without further ado, here she is. My guest today is Lori Walker, the founder and executive director of Village Home Education Resource Center in Portland, Oregon, slash Beaverton, Oregon, slash Salem, Oregon. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Blake. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, Village Home was the first place where I ever gave a public talk about alternative education. Do you know that? Well, I knew that I met you early on. I did not realize we were the first. I'm you honored. Were, you were the first. I The honor is all mine. 2009. That's right. And I remembered learning about Village Home and having trouble kind of wrapping my my mind around what exactly it offered back then. But when I came and I spoke and I met you, I became a, a true fan. And so can you can you tell me, sorry, can you tell everyone who's listening <laughs> what Village Home is in like an elevator length speech? Yes. So we are a community for people on independent learning paths, mostly homeschoolers and other self-directed learners. Uh, we offer a slate of classes, much like a community college starting at kindergarten, where kids can pick and choose what they want to study and when they want to study it. So the analogy to community college, I think, is a really strong one. And I mean, is it really like that for even for kindergarten age kids? Are, are they signing up for classes like they would if they were going to a community college? Well, functionally, yes. Um, it depends on the parents also, because we really honor the family as the manager of the young people's education. And we encourage the family to do that in you know concert with their kids, not in an authoritative kind of a way. And so what we encourage is to talk with your kids, even your kindergartners, what kinds of things are you interested in learning about? Um, let me tell you about some of these classes. Which ones do you want to take? Uh, that's really how we want the conversation to go, because we know that if the learner is not stepping into the classroom wanting to be there, uh, learning actually doesn't happen very easily. So we really want to start with the idea that the learner has decided to enter the class. So it sounds like you've got a bit of the unschooling, consent-based, self-directed model baked in here, but it also sounds like you are open to many different types of families signing up. Is that accurate? I think that's accurate. Uh, we really embrace a lot of the tenets of unschooling and self-directed education in general um, in that we want to encourage autonomy and belonging. Those are the two things that we work on here the most. And to do that, you have to start with choice for the kids. Beyond that, we are not completely unschooling or self-directed or any other label you want to put on it. Because we, once the kid steps into the classroom, there is 
a uh, curriculum, and I use that term very loosely, um, for the learner to participate in. And it's, but it's really up to them how they participate. And our teachers do a great job of offering choices even within the four walls of the classroom. And really our teachers are focused on helping the kids become inspired to learn more about that topic once they're outside of the classroom. So the classroom experience here is very small. It's about an hour a week on average. And we know that there is no way that we could deliver Algebra 1 in an hour a week, even if we wanted to. But what we can do is we can inspire the kids to be interested in algebra or in math or in mathematical thinking or uh, numeracy concepts, however broadly we want to brush this, um, so that they leave the classroom still thinking about it or uh, picking up that funny YouTube that Vi posts or um, checking out that receipt at the grocery store in a new way. So any of those things are what makes the classroom experience successful when the kids carry it outside and apply it in their lives and think about it for themselves. I imagine that because everything at Village Home is based around classes, you get people who are on the, the pretty far side of the unschooling spectrum criticizing you, saying like, well, this is all so structured. It's all so rigid. This is not what self-directed learning is about. Does that happen? Yeah, that happens. And just like any place, we're not for everybody. And there are some people that have a different view of what self-direction looks like, and they may not want to ever have their kids come to a class called geometry that happens at two o'clock on a certain day and time. And that's fine. We're not for everybody. But when, when we were looking at it, we thought that the important parts of the self-direction was, was that the learner had the opportunity to decide if they wanted to engage with this subject or not. Um, and the fact that once they decide they're going to engage with the subject, there is a structure built around that, even with choice within that structure, but there is a structure built around that. That is not the part that decreases motivation. It's the part that you have to learn this and you don't know why. That kills motivation in an instant. Mm. But um, self-direction can happen even if a kid knows that the class is scheduled at 2 o'clock on Tuesday. That doesn't eliminate the idea that a learner can be self-directed. And most of our families feel that way. Um, we do have families here who are definitely in the unschooling camp. And we have families here that are in a much more structured approach to education. And we serve all of those families and everything in between. You bring up a really interesting and thorny topic within the realm of alternative schools and self-directed learning. Uh, I think you and I agree on this basic idea of, of consensual education. If a kid opts into something, then that is the sign that, that this is on them and this is self-directed. But then within the structure that they have opted into, there's all these different levels of commitment and obligation. 
And I've seen that mostly at free schools or self-directed learning centers, uh, within a class that a, a kid, a student can opt into, uh, typically they won't assign homework, they won't require attendance on a regular basis in the way that an actual community college might do that. There, there does seem to be a certain uh, allergy to being required to do anything within this world. And I'm wondering how that manifests within village home classes. And, and is there a diversity of approaches in terms of what is required within each of these classes? Oh, uh, absolutely. So we limit homework as much as possible. In some of the middle school and high school classes, it becomes a part of the learning that helps the class move forward um, at a pace that keeps it interesting for everybody. Um, so there is homework on some of the high school and middle school classes. That being said, very little of it is required. And actually none of it is required technically because there's not uh, a punitive uh, measure if you don't do it. Um, if you don't do your homework, you're the one uh, paying the cost. There's some natural consequences, I suppose, that happen in terms of less learning and less opportunity to engage in the moment or um, things like that. But um, we don't have punishments in our classroom, so nobody gets a demerit or a bad mark if they don't do their homework. Are there grades? Are there units or credits issued? No, uh, we're grade-free, test-free. Um, when homework is assigned um, and kids that turn it in, the teachers do provide them feedback. But even in those situations, the kids have an opportunity to let the teacher know what kind of feedback they want. So I, uh, the most, um, the best example is probably in a writing class. So a teacher has people write a paper. The kids who turn it in um, can indicate at the top of their page using some kind of number system usually, or some teachers get clever and use, you know, cute little words or whatever. But the, the student lets the teacher know how much feedback they want. And it might be that the student threw it together the night before and they don't feel like this is very, you know, very indicative of their best work. And so they might indicate to the teacher, hey, go easy. I'm turning it in, you know, don't, don't look at it too hard. And in that case, the teacher just witnesses the work, just like reads the paper and might like put a mark on it to say, hey, I read this, thanks for sharing it with me. And or a, a student who wants a lot of feedback and wants to be critiqued on their work would indicate to the teacher when they turned it in with a, a whatever feedback system the teacher has in place. Yes, give me feedback on this. I really want to know. And then the teacher can mark it up or say, you know, this is a dangling participle or the verbs need to, you know, um, be in the proper tense here or whatever, they can correct it for the student or give the student more direct feedback on what they can do to improve the work. But the kids have an opportunity to control that so that they are not being um, done to. Mm. How would that work in a math class? Something that is much more linear, uh, quite different from writing. Right, so in a math class, it's more yes or no, like um, can you check my work or not? 
And then if the teacher, if the kid wants the work checked, then the teacher can check it for them. And hopefully when that happens, if the student is making a lot of errors, the teacher has the benefit of being able to sharpen that perspective for the kids because sometimes a teacher can see a pattern in the mistakes that the the kid isn't aware of. And so when the teacher corrects a math assignment, for example, and realizes, oh, obviously there is a misperception of how, you know, fraction denominators are handled. Let me clear that up with them. Um, and the, the student may not even be aware that that's what they're confused about. So that's the advantage. Um, even in a black and white, it's right or wrong, even though in math, that's even not the case. Um, you can definitely get part of an answer right and not end up with the mm-hmm. final answer, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the same in math or any of the other subjects. So the idea is because the the students have so much agency in in selecting these classes and they know that they can ask for more or less feedback depending on the day the assignment etc that they are more invested in the class and everything just flows really smoothly that that's what i've been imagining happens right the the other piece of it blake that we haven't talked about is just the absence of grades and tests Mm. changes the atmosphere and the relationship between the learners So our teachers um, spend some time thinking about providing opportunity for kids to learn from each other. And when you're not grading and testing, there isn't a yardstick, an invisible yardstick sitting between me and the kid next to me, um, non-consciously, that sets up um, a barrier to actual collaborative learning. And because we don't have that yardstick in our system, real collaboration happens and my next door neighbor um, doesn't understand this concept but yesterday he helped me with a concept i didn't understand and who cares like there's no nothing saying you get this and i don't um so i don't ever have an opportunity to think of myself as um behind or ahead or whatever and that lens Um, That creates actually a more truly collaborative space where kids are just comfortable thinking together. And it also sets up a space where mistakes can be made without any problem. And mistakes are where huge learning happens. Agreed. Um, I'm trying to visualize village home right now. And I know that there is not just one village home. There's now three village homes. so for people who have no idea what it might look like, is this a building that resembles a school? Does it look more like you know, an alternative school or a self-directed learning center? Are there hangout areas? Is it really just all about business, classrooms? Yeah. Uh, what's it like? Yeah, good question. So we are in physical buildings and we rent buildings. We share space that helps keep our tuition down. So there's other users in these spaces on the weekends or in the evenings. Um, In two cases, we rent a classroom space from a church, but we aren't affiliated with the church organization. And we are pretty staunchly secular in our approach. Um, Not pretty staunchly, we are very staunchly secular (laughs) in our approach. You are Um, secular. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
another building that we rent is actually from our partners, OMSI, and it is more like a business office building originally that has been broken up into classroom spaces. So to answer your question, there are classroom kinds of rooms with tables and chairs. And there's also a lot of space that we reserve for hanging out. And uh, our formula is about 25% of our square footage is for hangout space for students and for families. Um, so um, we have uh, lounges where people can hang out and uh, socialize or play a game or read a book or uh, work on their computer, whatever they want to do. Um, and then we also have play spaces that are geared toward our youngest community members where um, if, you know, little brother is hanging out while big sis is in her geography class, um, there's a comfortable, fun place for little ones to play together. So we have a special place for them. And if I'm a parent, I can just come and hang out, work on my laptop while I'm waiting for my kid to finish up his class? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we really want parents around here. So um, parents are welcome anytime. And a lot of them hang out here a lot. And a lot of them don't hang out here at all. It kind of depends on what they want to do. But we try to make it comfortable for them to hang out anytime they want to. They're also welcome in the classroom anytime. And uh, we have parents in and out of the classrooms every week. And sometimes parents come every week with their kids. Like if the kid is really young and isn't quite sure that they want to be there without mom or without dad, then, you know, dad comes to class with them and it's actually a pretty, it doesn't seem abnormal. And, um, it happens of course, more with the very young kiddos. Usually by the time the kids are, you know, 10 and older, the parents aren't hanging around too much in the classes, <laughs> um, by the kid's choice, you know, they, yeah, yeah. Get yeah. out of here, mom. Yeah, please, mom, go. Please, you're embarrassing me. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, but you know, if mom or dad still wanted to be on campus, that would be fine. <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the broad demographics of Village Home. Just how many students are enrolled? What are their ages? What kind of families do they come from? Mm -hmm. uh, well, we are for this fall, which our term starts next week. And um, for this fall, we are looking at almost 800 learners right now across all three campuses. And um, what do they look like? The average learner attends four classes a week, but that's one of those average numbers that is kind of not super meaningful because um, the actual answer is some people take one and some people take 20. Um, it's a pretty wide range. Uh, we find that the older kids take the most classes. So the older middle school, younger high school students are our heaviest users. And they take as many classes as they can, um, as they want. I mean, as and they want a lot, um, which is kind of fun to watch their appetites grow as they grow. And um, they take, uh, there isn't a, a standard pattern in terms of what they take. Um, we offer all different subject areas and all of our classes have a mixed age range of at least three years. And some of them are wider than that. 
but um, what we start with is a three-year age range. And um, so some kids find themselves the youngest in a class, and sometimes that same kiddo might be the oldest in their next class. And we mm -hmm. like that dynamic um, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's it's beneficial to um, help the ones younger than you, and it's also beneficial to learn from those older than you. So the way that we have the classroom age ranges staggered, it's possible for a kid to do both. I saw on your website that currently it costs $11 an hour mm -hmm. for classes. Um, I, I actually don't know how to interpret that. Is that a lot of money? Is that a little money? Is <laughs> <laughs> compared yeah. to community college, for example? <laughs> oh, compared to community college, yes. But I mean, we aren't offering the same uh, amount of um, content that a community college is offering in an average class. Although I have to say some of our high school classes are pretty rigorous in terms of the amount of content they're they're covering. Um, oh, yeah. How is it? That's that's a little it, $11 an hour is really quite affordable. So our average class uh, that meets for a 10 week term, an hour a week, we charge $110 for that class. And that is a deal. Um, we're really proud of the low overhead that we've kept. Um, most of our tuition dollars go straight into the classroom. And that's a great thing. But $11 an hour for instruction is pretty affordable in this market. Um, we keep an eye on the other people in the marketplace that offer uh, homeschooling services and um, a la carte type programs. There's a couple of big ones here in Portland. And we have managed to um, stay really affordable compared to them. In, in the greater Portland, Oregon area and Salem, Oregon areas, uh, are you mostly pulling in middle-class families? Uh, is, uh, I, I, most homeschoolers, um, in my experience, are, are broadly middle-class families from, from lower middle to upper middle. Yeah, uh, honestly, we do not collect uh, income data on our families routinely. So I don't know for sure. I can tell you what my guess is. Sure. Um, uh, my guess is that we mirror the general homeschool population, which is actually more diverse socioeconomically than people think. Um, and we also are work really hard to make it accessible to families who wouldn't be able to afford it otherwise. So we this year are issuing about $30,000 in cash tuition benefit and in scholarships. And then we're also offering another $40,000 in work scholarships. So um, we try really hard to make it accessible to uh, people who want it and um, or people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and help out. Mm. Um, so we, you know, we try our best. Um, homeschooling is not quite as socially diverse. I mean, socioeconomically diverse as the general population, obviously, but um, it's broader than you think. A another thing that people don't realize is that uh, we have some families here that are technically public school students because they are doing a online uh, public school program in one form or another. And some of those programs give the families money to spend on education programs. 
and they spend their public school charter funds on classes here. So that happens also, and that's a way for families who uh, maybe can't afford $110 for 10 weeks um, access to classes. And then the third thing that we do is that we have a whole slate of offerings that we call clubs, and clubs are um, led by parent volunteers. It's kind of the part of our program that is more like a traditional homeschool co-op. So a family might be really interested in chess or gardening or um, a book club or, you know, you, you name it, really. We had a, um, a Pokemon Go club last year and kids just like ran around and played Pokemon Go together. Um, but these are led by uh, parents or and or their kids. Um, and they tend to be really socially oriented times and they tend to be um, uh, just a little lighter, you know, in general, more, even more playful, I should say. And those are only $25 for a term. So um, we do have some families on a budget who just sign up for clubs and they get some great learning and great social connection. Mm -hmm. And they're part of the fabric of the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. $100 buys you four clubs yeah. for a whole term. Yeah. That's yeah. basically a day. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that most of the tuition goes right back into the classroom, which I assume means the teachers. And so how are your teachers compensated? Um, so uh, most of our teachers are part-time and they're paid hourly. And we try to keep that up in the marketplace. Also, it's one of our top uh, priorities to pay our teachers a very um, attractive wage Number one, because they work really hard. <laughs> um, and number two, because we, we really want to attract um, awesome teachers who are excited about what they're doing. And um, so by far, our biggest budget item is compensation. Um, for sure, that's our biggest expense. Um, and we also, uh, we share space, like I said, and so keeping our overhead in terms of physical plant low is also one of our key priorities. Are you at liberty to disclose how much money you pay the teachers? Oh, sure. Public podcast. Oh yeah. Well, it's on our website. I mean, anybody oh. who applies. Oh, knows. Good. <laughs> so, Excellent. Um, Transparent. Yeah. The, the teachers um, are paid hourly on a scale from 25 to 38. I believe that the uh, website says 35, but it's actually 38 is where it cuts an hour. Yeah. yeah good. Good. Per yeah. term. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And how many full-time staff do you have? How much overhead do you have in terms of, of year-round staff? Right. So um, full-time staff that are here year-round, there are um, six of us on off total across all the campuses. And then um, we have another handful of people that are part-time. And some of them only work a few hours a week. Like, for example, we have um, a volunteer coordinator position and that's just a few hours a week. And then we have um, office helpers and things like that that work a more steady schedule during the terms, but not during the, the breaks. We're only in session for 30 weeks a year, which, you know, th so there's a lot of off time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a few more questions about the organization, and then I'm going to ask you some personal questions. So be ready, Lori. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's right. Uh, 
It seems like Village Home offers this unique combination of classes, but also hangout time. It's extremely flexible in terms of tuition. You don't have to sign up for an expensive package deal. Uh, I really am not familiar with any other program in the U.S. or in the world that does something quite like Village Home does. Are are you familiar with other programs that that are doing something similar to you? Yeah, there's a few. Uh, We have uh, one of our families left here and went to Seattle and started a similar thing. Another family left here and went to Texas and started a similar thing. I was recently at the Alternative Education Conference and a woman from um, LA introduced herself and said, hey, we're doing Village Home in Los Angeles. This is it, here's my card. I was like, awesome, that's great. (laughs) So I didn't even know they existed. Um, So there are some other ones around for sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I I keep saying, oh, someday I'll get around to like um, organizing us all, but I haven't done that yet. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, one more question about Village Home. What are some of the most popular classes uh, of mm-hmm. all time. Of all time? Yeah. Oh just gosh. just ones that, that were a huge hit. Maybe they were always full. Maybe they, you know, the students demanded that they be repeated. Oh, so many. My gosh. Um, how can I answer that? Uh, let me think of some specific examples. So, um, oh, Hogwarts Academy is always, people want that all the time. Um, it is a cool class that's very interdisciplinary that has a backbone on the Harry Potter series. And, um, but it covers all kinds of interest areas. It's a very fun class. So uh, that one gets requested a whole lot. Um, a lot of our science classes get requested over and over again and fill up super fast. And I believe that that's because they are so hands-on. So even at the high school level, it's we're doing so many experiments and so many hands-on demonstrations or dissections or whatever it is that um, it's just really exciting to the kids to be able to learn that way. Um, what else are super popular? Oh, we have a, a class. This is a good example. Our classes are proposed by our teachers. So it's not like I sit in a room with a team of people who dreams up the classes for the schedule and then we go find the teacher to teach them. It happens in just the opposite way. So the teachers come to us and say, "Ooh, I'm really excited about this and I'd love to teach it. So, um, for example, there's a, a new podcast called Throughline um, that is an NPR co- podcast, I think. It's a fantastic podcast that looks at uh, a concept today and then follows it backwards to find out what is the origin of that and um, how has it evolved through time to where we are now. And, um, you know, one of my teachers is interested in that podcast and was like, I want to do a class about through line. And that's fantastic, you know. Um, So the classes are exciting and interesting and um, uh, fresh because it comes from the fresh ideas of our teachers. Um, Another super popular class, just it it always blows my mind how popular it is, is writing. 
Uh, just, you know, just writing? Just writing, like writing. high school writing, okay. um, middle school writing, you know. Um, and I think that that's an example of the kind of thing where kids sometimes uh, sign up because, oh, I really, I need to learn this skill, not because, oh, I love writing. I sit in my room and write for hours a day. Um, there's very few of those kids on the on the planet right now. <laughs> um, but they know that writing is a skill that they need. And so writing classes always fill up right away. All right, let's talk about how you got into this game, Lori. You are the founder, you're the executive director. What were you doing before Village Home? And then what inspired you to create it? Uh, Well, I think the short answer of what inspired me was my own family. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, What I did before this is kind of a weird little path, but most recently, um, before I started Village, I was a curriculum designer and uh, trainer at a company in California called Learning Forum. And they did uh, a few different programs, but one of the programs was training teachers and in methods to engage kids in learning. And then another part of the program was a residential summer camp program for different age kids that they called super camp um, that taught kids life skills and how to learn skills, basically academic skills, learning how to learn kind of a thing. So I had spent a lot of time thinking about uh, learning and also a lot of time with kids who didn't understand themselves as learners and did not see themselves as learners. And then I had a family of my own and I ended up um, quitting that job because I was enjoying the journey with my kids so much. Um, I studied developmental psychology when I was in college and always loved developmental psychology. It's my first passion. And so watching my own own kids unfold and um, I was a fan of uh, Jean Liedeloff's work, The Continuum Concept, and it shaped a lot about how me and my husband parented our kids. And um, so when it got to be time to start thinking about my oldest daughter going to kindergarten, it seemed very artificial to one day, December 12th, she's at home with me, and then I mean, September 12th, she's at home with me. And then September 13th, all of a sudden, she's in kindergarten for five hours or six hours because it's the first day of school, not because it's on any kind of a natural rhythm that would make any sense to her. Mm -hmm. And um, so I really wanted to honor that. And um, the idea that kids unfold along a continuum is... um, really powerful. And I think that uh, traditional schooling has to ignore that. It, it just has to, it can't function um, and pay attention to that individual unfolding. And so it was my husband actually, yeah, he, he's a neuro, he was a neuroscientist. He is now doing a different career, but he was a neuroscientist up here at OHSU for a long time. And he was in school for a long time 
you know, you get your PhD in neuroscience and you're a student a long time. And he was the one that brought it up in the first place in terms of let's not put our kids in traditional school. Let's do something different. And I honestly had never even thought about it. Um, but at that point in time, I started looking at it and we decided to homeschool in our way um, simply because we wanted to spend time as a family and we didn't want our kids to be required to unfold in a certain sequence. And uh, I started Village Home because I was watching people I knew who had older children just being harried as a homeschooler, running over here for a guitar lesson and running over there for a Spanish tutoring session with another family. And um, it was just really um, harried. And I thought, ooh, I don't want that because part of what I wanted was a uh, a calmness to our lives. That sounds like and, a lot of driving around Portland, Oregon. Yeah, it's a lot of driving around for anybody. For anybody. And then the other part of it, the main reason I hesitated to be on a self-directed learning path with my own kids was that I am big on community, obviously. And I wanted my kids to belong to something bigger than our own family. And um, we are, our family, our family, my personal family lives far from here. And so my kids don't have cousins that they can go visit and, you know, what have you. And I really wanted my kids to belong to a community where they could learn from lots of different kinds of people and be exposed to lots of different kinds of ideas. And um, I also didn't want to be the one that um, was responsible for introducing all aspects of the world to my kids. I'm not equipped to do that. The world is equipped to do that. And so I wanted my kids to be in the world as much as possible. And um, by building a place where the world is welcome, like you don't have to be a certain kind of a homeschooler or a certain kind of a person or have a certain religion or whatever to be here, then um, it, it created um, a landing mat for everybody to learn from each other. Yeah. And you have so many people at Village Home, although out of the 800 uh, that are enrolled right now, how many let's say at the the Beaverton campus, which is the, the largest one, how many are actually there on an average day? An average day. Um, I, hmm. So we have uh, nine classroom spaces on the main campus and our average class has 10 kids in it. So any given moment of time, there's a hundred kids on campus hmm. at a given moment in time. Um, across a whole day, I don't know. I'd have to do the math on that to, yeah, but, you know, more than 100 because yeah. a lot of people, you know, come in for their hour or two and then leave and somebody else is coming in and, you know, it's a lot of coming and going. That sounds like a fascinating place to be a kid if you can hang out there the whole day because all these different kids are coming in and out, different classes are happening, short conversations are happening, longer hangout time is happening. And I feel like you have really put your finger on the pulse of what so many homeschooling parents want, which is a, a, a large, rich, diverse community of peers of all ages, but, you know, lots of different kids mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, for their own kids to be around. And, and even when 
there's a cool alternative school or self-directed learning center in your neighborhood. I mean, typically, these are very small places. They're places with anywhere from 10 kids to, I don't know, 60 kids in some of the larger ones. But something like the Sudbury Valley School, for example, which has around 150 kids, that's a real outlier. And right. so I think getting over that that 100 mark is, is a really big uh, threshold to cross. And that's when I, I imagine it really starts to feel like a community where there's lots of different influences. Absolutely. Um, the Especially when you're dealing with adolescents, they need a lot of social energy around them, or they like a lot of social energy around them. And um, so, you know, launching a teen program here took a while because uh, we had to have a critical mass that's bigger than we thought it would have to be for it to feel rich to the kids. Um, and of course, we've surpassed that that little mark. And um, and now the the program here has so many different facets that it's you can really find the thing that you're excited about. If you want to be in choir or you want to help write a newsletter and be in the journalism class, or you want to be in a show, or you want to, um, you know, you can find your thing because there's so many different things happening now. Um, but that does come with um, volume. Mm. It does come with volume. And you're making me think of uh, the workshop that you led at the Aero Conference earlier this summer about creating large learning communities. Uh, and what stood out to me was you said, I did not start Village Home until I knew I had a very large critical mass. Like you refused to start small, which really goes against a lot of tenets of, you know, just build it and they will come or jump and the net will appear. This this very <laughs> idealistic approach that many uh, school starters um, go into the world with. And so can you just explain that reasoning for us? Well, the thought was that for this to be a useful tool for the whole family, there has to be some breadth in the um, in the program. So if we're offering one or two things at a particular time, um, then it might be good for five-year-olds, but then what is the 12-year-old doing in the family during that time? So it was not so much about total numbers for us as it was about a breadth of ages and uh, enough people across the different age groups um, to run classes at the same time that uh, work for a variety of different people. And it's not just about age, it's also about interest. So if we're only if we only have enough people to run two or three classes at a time, then and those classes happen to be a science class about animals and a math class and an engineering class on building bridges. And if you don't happen to be interested in any of those things, then you're not going to sign up for something. And so we needed to have enough breadth so that it was likely to have things in multiple time slots that would attract people and um, would make them excited. So when you have a little tiny program, there's just fewer opportunities to intersect. Yeah, and this really makes the college analogy work for me because I wouldn't want to go to a four-year university that only offered 
a small handful of classes with a total enrollment of of fifty students, for example, that's just not what college is about in the way that we popularly conceive of it. And so there needs to be this large selection and diversity of classes, this very large community where where lots of little subgroups can spin out of.、Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and and you know I say large, but our first year we opened with、um, you know sixty five or seventy five kids, so、um, it wasn't ginormous, but it was I, I, more I than think that. Sounds ginormous to a lot of people who who start these kinds of programs. <laughs> Just putting that on the table, right? Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. But again, that's sixty-five total. That's not sixty-five showing up and being there all day. Right. There's, there's a right. flow in and out. Yeah. Right.、Okay. Well, and in fact, on the main campus last year,、um, I calculated full-time equivalent students, and it's really low. I I I don't know, sixty or something like that. Sixty full-time equivalents, because the average kid is only here for four hours a week. So、um, there, I'm sorry. The average kid is only in class four hours a week. We have kids that are here a lot more than that, but、um, but it's very different from school playing the role of it is my waking hours Monday through Friday,、mm-hmm. um, which is what a traditional school is. So、mm-hmm. kids are in class a very small percentage of their whole life. You know, whole waking hours. So, ten years ago, Lori, I visited Village Home, and there was just one campus in Beaverton. And now, in 2019, there are three campuses: Portland, Beaverton, and Salem.、Uh, I want to know where Village Home is headed. Where do you see it going in the next ten years? You can, you can widely interpret、mm. that question. I'm not yeah. saying in 2029. Yeah. And I also want to know where you see yourself、yeah. within this realm. So、um, it's very interesting. I've really noticed a difference. We're in year seventeen right now, and when we first started, the idea that there was a class without grades and without tests, and it it like made no sense. People would look at us with this "what" kind of look, and now that is just like, of course, of course, there's no grade. I mean, we have come so far. In our understanding as a society of what learning actually looks like, and so when we started, we were further on the fringe, so to speak, than we are now.、Um, and so I think that this growth that we're experiencing is going to continue because the general public is understanding more about the importance of authentic learning as opposed to just. My kid in a chair in a classroom,、um, where learning may or may not be happening for my kid. So、uh, people are beginning to see the distinction between between the two and act on it. So I imagine、um, we'll continue to experience interest and growth in、um, what we're doing. The model. Um, we are kind of unique in the structure that we have, and we've worked really hard to build an infrastructure that is robust and that can、um, support a large community while also still allowing for individualism.、Um, so I think that it will continue to grow as、um, America wakes up to what is working. 
in education and um, what authentic learning looks like. And as for me, I, I'm at a real crossroads. Uh, this is actually going to be my last year in this role at Village. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm moving on in a few, in about a year. Um, and to what? I do not quite know yet, Blake. I'm imagining and <laughs> formulating. And, <laughs> and right now I'm just working really hard on being sure that my baby is is ready. Um, but in the life of a successful nonprofit, it's really important for the founder to uh, get out of the way at a, at a good juncture. And we are at a really good juncture for me to do that. So, um, so I'm going to be, uh, passing on the daily, um, management of this little baby to some wonderful person. And um, I don't know what I'll do next. We'll have to see what comes. All right. We'll do a follow-up interview. Uh, I got one more question for you, Lori. If somebody is listening to this and they're really inspired to explore the possibility of creating something like Village Home in the place where they live, what advice do you have for them? Hmm. Yeah. So my, my first piece of advice is uh, go super local first. So figure out um, a group of people right there with you who are ready to take this journey with you. I did not do this alone. I owe this wonderful place to a long, long line of dedicated, uh, smart people who, um, who have built this alongside me. And um, so don't go it alone. That's my number one piece of advice. <laughs> um, be sure that you have a team of folks who are committed to the project right there in your backyard. And how about recruiting that first, you know, critical mass of families? You made it sound so easy when you said, I just got 60 people to, to show up. <laughs> I imagine that seems like a big hurdle for a lot of people. Do you have any advice in that realm? Oh, so much advice, uh, how to boil it down. I think that the, the most important thing to do is to be as clear as possible. And I have to be honest, when I started this 17 years ago, if somebody would have said, this is what's going to be happening 17 years from now, I would have been, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's just like too much. I'm not going to do that. Um, so things, you know, take on a life of their own and um, uh, move in directions you would never imagine. And so all that we can do as founders is to be crystal clear about the, you know, core things we want to get done. Like, what are the, the three things, not the 30 things um, that are most important and focus on doing those well first? I think that's a great place to leave it. Lori, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Blake. I've really enjoyed talking to you.